0: Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners, this is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to the Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it thank you for helping us keep this show going. Welcome back to the Lonely Hours pre-season two miniseries. It's Julia here, and on the other side of the recording booth glass is my new team at The Listening Booth, home of Memory Motel and the forthcoming What's Happening Here. The Lonely Hour will officially start up again in October with The Listening Booth's help. We've got new resources, and we found new angles into the topic of loneliness. In the meantime, I'm sharing essays on loneliness to give you a little something to chew on. I'd commissioned these pieces over the summer. You can read all 18 on the LonelyHour.com under the Stories section. And I've picked five of my favorites to be read aloud here by the writers themselves. After each reading, I'm going to ask the author a few questions. Last time, I shared a piece called I'm Not Lonely, But I'm Not Bragging from Jamie Feldmar. And now I've got one from Matt Gross, a food and travel writer, as well as the former editor of Bon Appetit.com and the former frugal traveler for The New York Times. Here he is in a hotel lounge in Indonesia, reading, I'm never alone anymore, and I miss it.
1: The last time I remember being alone was in mid-December 2013. I was exploring Istanbul for a week on my own, eating and drinking everything I could put my hands on, partly because I write about food and travel, but also because that's just what I do. My base for this indulgent episode was an Airbnb in Jehangir a formerly bohemian neighborhood that was in the full throes of gentrification. This one-bedroom was big and comfortable and well-situated. Down the block was a storied pickle shop. Behind it, through a wall of windows, was a sunset valley of rooftops, minarets, and neoclassical consulates. The apartment was also empty. That is, I was the only one there. It took me a while to notice, actually. My first few days in Istanbul were so full of action that I was only home to sleep, shower, and make coffee. But then, one night, I retired early. I sat on the couch and heard nothing. There was no one in the apartment but me. I wasn't listening to music or watching TV or even catching the sounds of life outside the window or on the floors above and below me. Just silence, the kind of silence that leads you inside your own head. At first, it was disconcerting. Where was the tumult I was used to? Back home in New York, I had a wife and two young daughters. There was always someone around, eating, cooking, crying, reading aloud, singing, crying, using the bathroom, waking up, going to bed, getting put to bed, running the dishwasher, or crying. Here in Istanbul, I was 5,000 miles from those responsibilities, from those constraints, from that life. It should have felt freeing. Married people are supposed to relish these rare moments. Instead, I didn't know what to do with myself. This wasn't exactly my first time alone in a foreign land. In fact, I've spent most of my professional life wandering the earth, almost always returning to a solitary hotel room. I got accustomed to being by myself. I even liked to think I became quite good at being alone, at not needing companionship every moment of every day. I could make new friends in Urumqi or not make new friends in Urumqi. Solitude was something I owned. In Istanbul, however, I felt like the renter I was, a guest in the realm of loneliness. Was I sad, scared, excited? Did I miss my family? Did I crave human contact? Did I just need to put on some music? Yes, maybe, I don't know. Was my emotional state a function of the city itself, this gyre of people and history? Or would it have happened anywhere on this, my first long solo trip in nearly two years? I remember sitting there quietly for a while before noticing, somewhere underneath this mishmash of conflicting emotions, that I was okay. Neither scared nor excited, just fine, normal. I thought of the classic line from Lawrence of Arabia, The trick is not minding that it hurts. Alone in that apartment, I was exempted from the realm of needs. I needed no one and was needed by no one. That was freedom, and it was a freedom I'd forgotten. And it was a freedom that didn't last long. The night ended, and a few days later I was back in New York, back in the realm of needs and people. People I love, it should be noted, as well as needs I need. It's been that way ever since. I haven't experienced a moment of true solitude despite trips away from home, to New Zealand and to Boston, to Seoul and to Albuquerque. In part, that's because I've stayed in more hotels than apartments, and hotel rooms tend to lack the right atmosphere of absence and expectation. They're confined, temporary by design, reset by housekeeping each morning to appear as if you'd never been there. Whereas apartments, apartments are homes decorated with family photos and children's drawings. The closets are filled with clothes that smell of their owners. A night or two in an Airbnb won't hurt. It takes time for loneliness to properly ferment. And indeed, most of my trips have been relatively short. In Boston, where I briefly moved for a job I ended up hating, I was too consumed with feeling miserable to notice I might be lonely as well. That's just my hierarchy of negative emotions, I guess. The perhaps weird thing is that I miss being alone. Or maybe more accurately, I miss the feeling of dealing with being alone. There was a Sisyphean triumph in coming to terms with my aloneness, again and again in various far-flung corners of the world. I was good at rising above not knowing anyone and not speaking the language. And now, now I have no need to be good at it. What's left is muscle memory. In the same way that I can pick up a skateboard today and, with just a few hours of practice, pull off many of the same stunts I did as a teenager, I know that I can also confront and conquer loneliness with a similar joyful acceptance of the inevitable pain. With skateboarding, as with solitude, I know the trick is not minding that it hurts.
0: You questioned whether or not the loneliness you felt in Istanbul had to do with the particular mix of people and history in that city. Do you find that some cities are more lonely-making than others, and if so, how so?
1: Uh, cities can be very lonely-making because they're cities. They're places where lots of people go to be anonymous, to live chock-a-block with their neighbors and yet not know them. People in some ways go there to be alone, to be lonely, but also to be in a position where their solitude uh, makes it possible for them to meet people. So I'm not sure there are particular cities that do that more than others, Uh, The bigger they are, the messier they are, sure. It has to do more, though, with the particular culture of the country, whether people talk to strangers, whether people are looking to have conversations, whether they're outgoing. Certain cities like Buenos Aires and Ho Chi Minh City are great for being alone. Everybody wants to talk to you. It's wonderful. Uh, It's hard to be lonely just sitting on a bench, drinking a beer or fresh coconut juice there. But other cities, I don't know, Chongqing in southwestern China, ah, that's not a great place to be alone. Nobody will talk to you. Nobody will pay attention to you. There's too many millions of people, too many billions of activities going on. For anyone to notice that you're there, it can be a pretty lonely place.
0: You're abroad right now in Asia. Have you felt lonely there? Your family's with you. Can that add a different shade to loneliness abroad?
1: So I've been traveling around Asia for the last two or three weeks. The first week was in Taiwan with my family, my wife, my kids, staying at my in-law's house. Uh, and the last two weeks I've been bouncing around Indonesia in search of hot sauce. Uh, and I've been doing that pretty much entirely on my own, except for the fact that I've always been with people. Uh, guides, friends of friends, strangers I've met, Uh hot sauce makers. There hasn't really been a lot of time for loneliness. One thing I didn't get into in this piece, I think, is that because I write about food and travel when I'm traveling and eating while I travel, I'm working. And when you're working, you're in a different mindset from when you are relaxed and doing something personal and being alone. I have to concentrate on where I'm going next, what I'm doing next, who I'm going to interview. There's really not a lot of time to think about going home to an empty hotel room. So, no, I haven't felt lonely really at all. I've missed my family, but I've been surrounded by people, people I know well, people I don't know well, uh, people I'll never meet, but not really a drop of loneliness on this trip yet.
0: You said that, quote, it takes time for loneliness to properly foment, end quote. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, it takes time for loneliness to bubble and develop. A day or two, you might not notice it. It's refreshing to be on your own sometimes. But two, three, four days, and you start to notice the absence of people in your life. You start to notice the lack of sound, the lack of activity, the way when you move on a couch or in a chair, you hear all the crinkles and rustles of your clothing it's those little things those sound effects that remind you how alone you are but they don't appear right away it takes it takes time to start noticing them you start to i don't know you get in a different zone of of attention and and suddenly your solitude becomes apparent to you it's something you didn't realize before i mean this is in some ways what all kinds of reporting are like right you spend one day reporting on a topic, uh, you're going to get a superficial view of it. You spend four or five days on it, you start to see things that are deeper. Um, yeah, this is the it's the uh, one-and-a-half-minute cable news version of something versus the 90-minute PBS documentary version of something. You can go a little deeper, see a little more.
0: What does loneliness mean to you?
1: That's a, that, that, I don't know, that, um... I think that there's a kind of inevitability to loneliness, and at some point we're going to be alone, physically alone, alone with our thoughts, alone in a situation that we can't deal with, alone in an airport hotel lounge like I am right now, uh, and the sooner we realize that and figure out ways to deal with that, the better, the happier we'll be, the more capable we'll be. And that's it. I'm going to go get on my plane now. Uh, hope this works for you guys. Bye.
0: So what does loneliness mean to you, listeners? I'm not the expert on the topic. I'm just the shepherd of the conversation. So let's explore what loneliness means together. Drop me a voicemail with your definition on Google Voice. Dial 415-663-5901. That's 41-lonely-01. You can also record your thoughts as a voice memo and email me the mp3 file at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. Just make sure to include your name and an email address so I can get back to you, because we may use what you said in a future episode. Otherwise, stay tuned because I'll be sharing a new essay soon. In the meantime, you can read all of them at thelonelyhour.com. And as always, you can email me there or find me on Twitter at lonelypodcast or on the Lonely Hour's Facebook page.